Morning, church. So there's, um, before we dive into this text, dive into this text, don't even think about that. That don't, shh. Um, didn't even think about that until just now. Um, before we dive into this text, there's, there's something important that you need to know. Um, um, the emphasis, let me say this up front, um, the emphasis on chapter two, because I don't know if you caught it when Jenny was reading, it's, um, it's very poetic. Did you see that? The way in which that Jonah talks about his experience. But the emphasis in chapter two is not on the predicament of Jonah as much as it is upon the provision of God. So if I can, I guess, set your mind into a proper trajectory, okay, the, the emphasis here is placed upon not Jonah's predicament as much as it is upon God's provision. It's not what Jonah has done to get himself into this mess, though that's true. It's more about what God does in order to save him out of this situation. You get that? So when you come into this text and you think about, okay, what, where's the emphasis here? Well, the emphasis is that salvation is of the Lord. So the emphasis is not so much, oh, Jonah, man, you're in a real stitch up, though that's true. It's only a sovereign, almighty God could save you from such, such a stitch up situation. Make sense? That's, that's the emphasis here. So here's what I want to do. Because chapter 2 is quite unique, and some people, let me say, some people refuse to actually investigate Christianity or dismiss Christianity because of this chapter. Okay? So what I mean by that is uh, they'll say there's no way people get swallowed by whales except for in Pinocchio and things like that. So you have to understand that th this particular chapter is kind of a deal breaker for people out in the world. So I, what I want to do is actually first, here, here's kind of where we're headed. First, I want to, I guess, pull back and kind of get a bird's eye view of what, how this I guess the outlay of this chapter so we can kind of put some hooks on it because you can kind of get lost in all the poetic imagery that, that Jonah is using. It's, it's very good imagery, but we can kind of get lost in it. So I want to sort of pull back and say, I want to kind of say, how do we understand this chapter? How, how do we outline it? How do we, how do we see it? All right. And then, and then I want to say, can we really believe that this actually happened? Like, and, and what I hope to do is, is reinforce your confidence in the scriptures, that this, in fact, actually did happen, and that you'll find that all the arguments against it are actually quite weak, okay? So that's, that's, that's the second thing. And then lastly, rather than just give you sort of a structure and, you know, confidence in the trustworthiness of scripture, that's all helpful stuff, then I want to bring it home and look at Jonah's life and think about our life and say, how does God answer his people, his, his servants, when they call out to him in distress? When they cry out to him in distress? Does that make sense? So first, the, the, the structure. And Ken, Dan Kenny's excited because he's an English major, so he's like, he loves that kind of stuff. The rest of us, we'll just have to bear through it, okay? And then some of you maybe... Maybe you really struggle with this still, this like, 
really? The, the, come on, the dudes, the fish, the whale, crazy stuff. So we'll, we'll look at the reliability of that and the arguments against it. And then lastly, applicable to all, will be, okay, what are five ways in which God answers his people when they cry out to him in distress? Because that's what Jonah does here. And we'll sort of, we'll unpack it that way. All right, so that's where we're headed. Clear? Clear as custard? Yes? Great. All right, you got it. All right. All right, let's, uh, let's look to the Lord in prayer. Let's, let's ask him to bless our time. Lord, we praise you for this privilege of coming around as your people to hear from you. Uh, Lord, we know that this is not just a random little fairy tale book. This is a true book that you inspired, which is living and active. So we pray that you would use me now as we open this word up, this story, this real life account. Would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, faith to believe, in Christ's name, amen. Okay, so... I want to start off by allowing us to sort of step back and do that sort of bird's eye view of the structure, the thing that gets Dan all excited, okay? So, so look at jo- Jonah chapter 2. Open your Bibles there. Jonah chapter 2. Again, I, I really enjoy, I like this chapter a lot. It's a, it's, it's a really good chapter. Um, this is a prayer that we have from Jonah, and there's two sections to it, okay? So some of you are like, ah, just, if you understand the structure, you'll understand how to read it better. Okay, so there's two sections. Verses 1 through 7, that's the first section, all right? And what does Jonah do? He, he, Jonah prayed and reflected on his experience being cast overboard into the sea. So in verses 1 through 7, in this passage, he stresses about his plight and God's willingness to answer him for his cry of help. Then in verses 8 through 9, again, it's helpful if, if you don't have a Bible, you're just kind of like, just, you're just, I, don't know, I don't know what you're doing. But if you have a Bible sitting on your lap right now, you can, you can see exactly what I'm saying. So everyone, everyone there? So in verses 8 through 9, he offers praise to God for saving him from his dreadful plight. So verses 1 through 7, he prayed, reflected upon his experience, being cast overboard, and he's crying out, God. And then he's reflecting upon that, like in a past sense sort of way, which is interesting. And then in verses 8 through 9... He's, he's saying, oh, um, I'm praising you, Lord, because you've saved me from this dreadful plight, dreadful situation. Now, we'll circle back to that when we get to this idea of God's, you know, uh, his response to people that cry out to him. But for now, I want to park the car here or the anchor the boat and, and, and ask ourselves, why does this fish why does this whale get all the spotlight? Have, have, have you noticed that? Whenever people think of Jonah, instantly they think of the fish story, right? All oh, that bloke that, that, that got swallowed by the fish. And, and I don't think that this was added in to sort of spice things up for us. Like chapter one was already spicy enough. It got, your, it got my attention, right? And I don't think we're like, oh, we're starting to drift off here. And it's like, what should I do now? Oh, I got an idea. Let's throw in this fishy bit about, you know, a, the, the whale and the... Okay, I don't think it's to heighten the narrative so that we sort of wake up. Um, I, again, I think the danger is if, if we focus so much on the great fish in this chapter, we lose sight of the great God. 
So chapter 2 is written to show that salvation is of the Lord. Okay, that's, again, that's the thrust. But the way in which it's written is what's called poetic meter. Notice what I'm saying here. Look at Jonah chapter 1, verse 17. This is interesting because Jonah says that he was in the belly. Notice here. Jonah chapter 1, verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And then in chapter 2, it says that he prayed from the belly of the fish. But here it says, notice, I called out, chapter 2, to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me, out of the belly of Sheol. You see that? So what does that mean? Sheol, Sheol, however you want to say that. That was a place of the dead, shadowy place where people in the Old Testament went to, until final judgment happened. So, so this phrase does not mean that Jonah actually died. Do you, do you understand that? Out of the belly of Sheol. Some people actually will make the argument, oh, that Jonah actually died in this fish. No, the language there is that he had a near-death experience. Does that make sense? Sheol, King David does this. In Psalm 18, verse 5, David speaks this way as well about this near-death experience. He says, The cords of Sheol entangled me, the snares of death confronted me. So does David mean in Psalm 18 there that he is in Sheol? No. It's poetic language. It's, it's used to capture, to, to paint a picture for us. My wife has been pregnant um, several times. Surprise. And every time she really struggled with nausea and she would call me, particularly when our first child was born, and she would say this, I'm dying. Now, she wasn't literally dying, okay? She's just using that as a figure of speech. Now, some of you ladies are like, you jerk. Yes, she was dying. You don't know what that's like. And when you get off the stage, I'm going to tell you what it feels like and give you my own sermon, okay? So, um, but it's a, it's a figure of speech. That's, that's what Jonah's in the belly of Sheol. It's this poetic meter, Right? Now, it's, now, why am I drawing all of your attention to that? Well, because it's important to know when we start talking about the historicity, the trustworthiness of this, we need to understand the language that Jonah is using to communicate. Because people will see this and they'll say, this is an absolute load of rubbish. This is, there's no way. I don't believe. Come on, do you really believe in fairy tales that this man was really swallowed by a, a whale? In fact, I've had people in the past really struggle uh, to come to grips with the reliability and the authority of the scriptures over this part right here. And this is often the two objections that people give. That when they read Jonah chapter 2, they say, we know that this is, has to be like a Jewish fable. A Jewish fable. So, um, liberal scholars or progressive scholars, people that don't trust in the uh, reliability of the scriptures or the miracles in the scriptures, they will come up with certain uh, details, 
here, and they will draw erroneous conclusions about this chapter. For instance, look at Jonah chapter 2, verse 2. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he delivered me out of the belly of Sheol, for you cast me into the deep and into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. Now here's where they, this, this is where they, they go crazy. All your waves and your billows passed over me, and I said, I'm driven away from your sight. The waters closed in, verse 5, over to take my life. The deeps ran. Notice weeds or seaweed were wrapped around my head. So certain liberal progressive scholars will look at this and say, ha, this has to be a myth because we know that waves of the ocean don't flow back and forth inside of whales' stomachs. And whales' bellies do not contain seaweed. So this has to be just a parable of some kind of a Jewish fable that he's talking about here. Now, the problem with that theory is it draws the assumption that the whale is an instrument of threat to Jonah's life. And it assumes that in his desperation, Jonah is crying out to God to rescue him from the whale. These assumptions, though, are invalid because they're based off the idea that Jonah was swallowed by a whale. The Bible does not say that Jonah was swallowed by a whale. It says what? A great fish, or if you have a King James, a sea monster. That's what it says. And so I think naturally people jump to the conclusion that this would have been a whale, obviously to accommodate a man, a full-grown man, but no one knows what this fish was. The important principle here that we cannot pass over is the fact that God himself is the provider of the fish. The Lord could have created a unique, special act of creation for this exact moment. Notice the, the language the Lord appointed a fish for Jonah. He ordained, he prepared. And as I mentioned, this argument about, you know, we know this can't be true, assumes that the whale or the fish is sent to punish Jonah. But even a cursory reading of this chapter makes it clear that Jonah's fish was a sign of God's grace to save him from drowning. So the threat to Jonah's life is not the fish, it's the sea. Jonah is thrashing about in the sea, in the ocean. He is about to die in the water until he is rescued by the fish who scoops him up and carries him to dry land. Just look at verse 3. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. And the floods surrounded me. All your waves and billows passed over me. Is this a man inside of a fish? Or is this a man about to drown in the sea? See, in this text, Jonah is alive on this planet and not in Sheol. So obviously he is using this term belly of Sheol in a figurative sense. And the sea is Jonah's belly of hell, as it were. So people say, well, it has to be a Jewish fable. Again, I'm not convinced. Other people will say this. This whole thing, Rob, this is the problem with you Christians. This is scientifically invalid. This is scientifically impossible. Did Jonah actually live inside of a fish three days? Well, if you write off miracles in the Bible, right? Like if you start with that assumption, well, then the answer is no. And, and then what do you do? Well, you have to start, you have to explain it somehow, right? So some people, there are people who assert that if a man were inside the belly of a fish for three days, that the juices that are secreted in the stomach cavity 
of that fish would kill him. So that's one thing, and that's probably true. Or others conclude that Jonah couldn't have lived in a fish, so this book needs to be viewed as some kind of allegory. In other words, Jonah is like the nation of Israel, which there might be some truth to that. There might be some parable, but, th- but that's all they would say that's all it is. And, well, the fish is like Babylon and judgment and swallows up Israel in captivity. You see? You can just go, you can go all day with that thing. So, so they just they say, well, this must be some kind of what's called didactic, meaning teaching, uh, some kind of an allegory. We're supposed to see a bigger picture of what's going on here. The character of Jonah only represents the nation of Israel. And the fish represents Babylon. Others have said, no, I I think that, well, there's likely Jonah, and this is, people have, this is in commentaries, Jonah and the sailors made it to dry land and actually recovered from this massive storm that they were in by spending three days and three nights in a Palestinian inn called the fish or some type. (laughs) And now you laugh about that, But again, if you write off miracles in the Old Testament, then you're forced to make up some kind of conclusion, some kind of rationale to it. On the other hand, if you believe in the infallibility and trustworthiness of the Scriptures, you can take Jesus at His word when He defends the accuracy of Jonah. Now, what do I mean by that? Go to Matthew. Go to the Gospel of Matthew. Look what Jesus talks about. Matthew Chapter 12, Matthew 12. Look at verse 38. So the Pharisees, they want to, you know, as you know, the Pharisees and scribes, they're not believing who Jesus is and they want to see another miracle. And so what does Jesus do? He actually, rather than say, I'm not going to pull a rabbit out of a hat for you, I'm actually just going to point you to a previous miracle that occurred in space and time in the Old Testament. Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet who? Jonah. Very interesting. For just as Jonah was, when those three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Isn't that fascinating? Jesus was crucified on Friday, and his resurrection happened on Sunday. Friday is considered one day one, and Sunday is day three doesn't not have to be a full 24-hour period to represent a whole day. Now, Jesus parallels Jonah's time in the fish. Did you see that, though? Three days and three nights as an illustration of the literal three days and three nights that he himself would spend in the grave. In other words, Jesus points to the fact that just as Jonah's preaching was validated by the miracle of the fish, so Jesus' mission will be validated by his resurrection. So those of us who respect the wisdom and trustworthiness of Jesus should probably take him at his words and shouldn't call into question his judgment. He thought the story of Jonah was historical, and so should we. 
Now, some of you might say, okay, yeah, yeah, fair enough, but, yeah, 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 but how can a man survive in the belly of a fish three days and three nights? You still haven't answered that. The answer to that is you probably can't. Any more than a person can spend three days in the grave and rise again. Jesus knew this was no ordinary event here, as he's referring to it. It was a miraculous event. So really, there's no sense in trying to explain it scientifically any more than we can explain Moses splitting the Red Sea scientifically. Well, you know, we probably believe that this might have happened because, you know, he, it was probably just the right tide when Moses showed up, and then they walked through during low tide, and then, and then the Egyptians followed them, and then the high tide came and killed them. Really? But again, if your assumption, your working assumption going into the text is, I can't believe that miracles happen, you're going to come up with all this stuff. I love how Jesus says, notice here though, verse 41, before we come back to Jonah, something greater than Jonah is here. I love this. Don't miss this. Jesus refers to Jonah as a type of himself which is interesting. Now, now, Jonah was entombed in the belly of the fish. Jesus was entombed in the heart of the earth. And just as Jonah was delivered from his watery grave, so Jesus Christ emerged victoriously from the grave. Jonah was a preacher of repentance to the Ninevites, right? Someone much greater than Jonah had come preaching repentance as well, namely Christ. Also, Jonah's miracle And his preaching were a sign to the Ninevites, and Jesus and his preaching were a sign to the current, as he says, wicked generation. But something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is greater than Jonah because he is the fulfillment of all that Jonah and his mission foreshadowed. In other words, Jesus saw the book of Jonah as anticipating his own ministry and message. When Jonah's struggling in the water, and he says, I am driven away from your sight. There's no doubt that as Jonah senses death creeping upon him, he feels the weight of God's abandonment. But this only foreshadows or points forward to another who entered into a state of forsakenness beyond anything any human has ever experienced, that being total abandonment from God. You see, Jonah was in this mess in chapter 2 because of his own sin. Jesus, on the other hand, accepted the abandonment and wrath of God, not for his own sin, but for ours. Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, which means that we were born radically depraved and God-hating, and that we would have never sought God never came to him. We have rebelled against him. You understand? It's not, that, it's not an issue that we've just sinned once or twice. Dear friend, it's that from the day that you've been born, you've done nothing but sin. And because of that, do you know what you and do you know what I deserve? The wrath and holy hatred of God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Church, we need to really grasp this. I was just saying this to Reynard in my office this morning, that God is a holy God, and the only way that you and I could ever be reconciled to a holy God is through the death of God's own Son 
when he hung on the cross. Because Jesus Christ, when he hung on the cross, dear friend, if you believe in him, he bore your sin. You know, people have said, well, that, wow, I mean, that's a huge, think about that. that the cross is a sign of how much man is worth. That's not true. The cross is a sign of how depraved we really are that it took the death of God's own son to redeem us. That there is now, because of that though, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's good news. That is good news. Now, those of us and I, you know, I can't, I, you know, I, Dan and I say that probably every time we preach, and I really hope we hope forever do, and I hope you never tire of that news, that you, like, that this is the most important thing. I don't, like, I don't care, what, like, honestly, it sounds insensitive, but anything going on in your life right now, it's just, your mist, your life's just like a little mist, just like mine. One day we will stand before God and be judged by him and have nothing in our hand to bring, only to the cross we must claim. Greatest news in the world. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For those who, did you hear that though? Listen carefully. There's now no condemnation for those of you sitting in this church right now. No. 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 There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ in Christ Jesus, covered by His righteousness. Outside of that, you're damned. Inside, you are blessed if you are in Christ. It's just that simple. Now, for those of us that are in a situation where we want to cry out to God, or maybe we've been in one recently, what are five ways that God answers his children when they cry out to him in distress? So turn back to Jonah. Let's, let's have a look at that. Jonah chapter 2. It's interesting, Jonah would have been very familiar. I mean, he's a prophet with the Psalms. In fact, here's a few Psalms if you want to jot these down. You can talk about them in your growth group later or talk about them after church. Psalm 42 verse 7. Psalm 130, verses 1 through 3, and Psalm 69, verses 1 through 15. There they are. Um, there's a lot of echoes of those psalms in Jonah's prayer here in chapter 2. But let's look here. He's talking about his distress. So how does God answer his children when they cry out to him in distress? Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, Out of... Notice, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. And he answered me, out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Jonah knows that he was being disobedient. He's running from the Lord. That's why he's chucked into the sea. And as I said last week, what can we expect when we say no to God? Well, we can expect a storm. And if that's you, with Everything in you might wonder, okay, is there any hope? Because I feel like I'm in a storm right now because of my disobedience. I know the sin that I shouldn't have done, and I feel like I'm copping it. Yes, God can have mercy on you. Jonah is guilty. 
but he acknowledges that to the Lord. So how does God answer his children when they're in distress? In spite of our guilt. In spite of our guilt. Jonah is guilty, but he acknowledges that to God. And this principle is not isolated one found in Jonah. God did the same thing with the people of Israel. Psalm 107 says this, Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High like Jonah. So he bowed their they, so they bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. They cried to the Lord in their trouble, like Jonah, and he delivered them from their distress. God answers his children in spite of our guilt. How else does God answer us in distress? Well, look at verse 3. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. It's a very, the image there is very scary. I mean, but here's what's interesting. Notice the language here. You cast me overboard. Hold on. Didn't the mariners do that? They did, but Jonah acknowledges God's hand of providence in that act. As Jonah went flying over the side of the boat, thinking, I'm done for, but it was actually God that threw him off. Not to destroy him, but so that he can continue to use him. Because it was impossible to make use of him when he was buried, silent, sleeping underneath the deck. Tempted to say, ah, I'm the captain of my fate, the master of my soul. And God pursues him in the ocean, throws him overboard and says, Jonah, we need to talk. And as soon as he gets him into the position where he's ready to talk... What does Jonah do? He cries out to God despite his judgment. And how does God answer his children in distress? Not only despite our guilt, but in despite of his judgment. Despite his judgment. When God is displeased with us, he never brings us into affliction just for the sake of punishment. His purpose is not just to, just to whack us, but actually to redeem us. I mean, Job knew this. Job said this in Job 36. He said, He delivers the afflicted by their affliction and opens their ear by adversity. Adversity is redemptive, not merely punitive. Jonah prayed for deliverance to the very God who threw him overboard, and the God who threw him overboard heard his prayer and saved him. Let's look at verse 4. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your Holy temple, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. Now, this must have been a terrifying experience. Imagine trying to tread water in a storm with massive waves crashing over you. And as you feel yourself being sucked down, gasping for air, you're, <gasps> and then you finally make, as you're trying to just go all the way up to the surface to get one last breath, just as you're making your way up to the surface, you hit a massive bowl of seaweed that tangles around your whole body and just sucks you down to the bottom of the sea. Now, those of you who ever been to the ocean or you surf, you, you may have been, had a long 
you know, where it holds you under, and that's scary. This is actually God's judgment. Remember, the storm is from him originally. And so he's just trying to, he's trying to get, catch his breath for just a minute, and then he hits this ball of seaweed that just wraps around him like a straitjacket, and then he's just going down. Now, you think that that would be a scary experience, and no doubt it would have, but that's not what terrifies him the most. What terrifies him is he says, I am driven away from your sight. I'm not in communion with the Lord. The sea is scary, but now I have to face the God who I've said no to. And it's impossible for me to hide anywhere from him or justify my actions. That's why Jesus said, in essence, that it's impossible not to be banished from his sight unless you're clothed with his righteousness. And that's why I say you've got nothing to say, no excuse when you stand before Almighty God for why you've said no to him. So how does God answer his children in spite of their guilt, in spite of his judgment because of his son, but also in spite of impossible circumstances? This is an impossible circumstance. He, he, Jonah's treading water, losing strength, and his initial thought is, I'm rejected by God. But as I already stated, it finds its ultimate fulfillment in the rejection and crucifixion of Christ. For now, it seems that everything, though, right there in Jonah's circumstance, it worsens. He's sinking deeper and deeper. And then the Lord intervenes in verse 6. Notice verse 6. The roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, and yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake the hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will repay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So when, you notice he says there, when my life was fainting away. In this struggle, Jonah began to lose his breath and take in water, and just as he was losing consciousness... His thoughts turn to God and he prays. God answers his children just in the nick of time when they call to him in distress. And I've found, I can't speak for you, but I have found the Lord has often stretched me all the place where I'm almost drowning in my circumstances. Because I'm, I'm prideful and self-sufficient. I got this, I got this. And just when I'm like, I've got nothing now. Help! the Lord is there at the 11th hour, just when I need him. He'll often stretch you all the way to there, just that 11th hour when you're like, that's right, the plane's going down, the plane's going down, when belly just scrapes the ground. So the Lord is, is shaping you through that entire experience. God answers his children in impossible circumstances. Psalm 50, verse 15, Call upon me in the day of trouble, I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. Just when Jonah thought all hope was lost, he was abandoned by God, he's swallowed by this fish. Not a great place to live, as we talked about last week, but a wonderful place to learn. The night is dark, but I am not forsaken. For by my side, the Savior, He will stay. I labor on in weakness and rejoicing, for in my need, 
His power is displayed. Notice the conclusion Jonah comes to. Verse 8, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Jonah's essentially saying that those who worship idols will discover in times of trouble how powerless they really are to save. And then they will no longer devote themselves to him. In contrast, those who worship the Lord will always find him trustworthy and reliable because salvation belongs to the Lord. See, other nations would have responded differently by, you know, if they had this experience, they'd have erected some kind of fish idol. Interestingly enough, the Philistines had a god whose image was named Dagon who was like in the shape of a fish. But Jonah understands that a fish is not his savior. It's only the means by which God himself intervenes to rescue him. So he says what every Christian should say, salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation is from God. No fate I dread, I know I am forgiven. The future sure, the price it has been paid. For Jesus bled and suffered for my pardon, and he was raised to overthrow the grave. So how does God answer his children when they're in distress? Lastly, in order to cause us to praise him. So that we praise him. Jonah did not save himself. He was totally powerless to do so. The only possible way he could be saved was by divine intervention, by God reaching down and saving him. And the same applies to you and to me. 1 Peter chapter 2 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priest of the holy nation, a people of his own possession. Listen, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So then the Lord spoke to the fish, verse 10, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. So there's Jonah. He's been in a fish. And maybe some people are like, man, where have you been? You wouldn't believe it if I told you, <laughs> right? But you know what? God saved me. Where have you been? How has the Lord worked in your life? Has God saved you? Can this song that Jonah prayed be yours? Is it on your lips now? Salvation belongs to the Lord. I pray that it is, friend. And when you just step back and think about this, that the Lord saved you, and the only reason that you're saved is because, like Jonah, you were wasting away, and he reached down and plucked you and saved you, the natural knee-jerk response should be, thank you, Lord. I did nothing. I got myself into this mess to start with. I was drowning. You, by your own sovereign grace, plucked me and saved me. I, I mean, if I rescued anyone, like if I saw one of you guys drowning, right? And I could probably rescue a lot of you guys. I bet you I could. 
Clark surfs massive waves, so he's on his own if he goes out to four. He's on a big, on a big day. But if I, if, I, if, if, I re- if I rescued you, like saved your life, you died, I brought you back to life on the beach, it, you, the, I, I would hope that you'd be like, thank you, <laughs> right? That I wouldn't bring you to life, and you're like, get off of me. I got this one. I had that, man. Leave me alone. You'd be like, dude, you saved my life. Thank you. Like, I, I'm indebted to you. So much more, the Lord, because of Christ, saved you eternally. Not just here to know Him and delight Him, but forever. So our, our knee-jerk should be praise to Him, that we'd say salvation belongs to the Lord. So we close and stand in agreement with Jude. Let's pray this. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen. So friend, if you're here and you are